name's Luke. It's good to see you. Good to be with you. Hello to all of our campuses. If you're watching online as well, I got a question for you. Um, what are you looking forward to? What are you looking forward to? Now, with that question, you might think we're kind of in the realm of self-improvement or psychology, because any, you know, any life coach will tell you, you should always have something to look forward to. It'll make you happier. It'll, it'll infuse your life with some positive energy. Well, you know, you've got to have something to look forward to. So, I mean, those aren't bad things, right? Go, go with it for a while. What are you looking forward to? Maybe it's a, maybe it's a, a vacation, an end-of-the-summer getaway, or school starting. Mixed bag, probably, on that one. Somebody like, I'm just looking forward to, di- to dinner. Like, or church being over. Like, this guy quit talking. A uh, nap. Uh, payday. Football season. Um, maybe, it's, uh, maybe it's like a, a home renovation or the completion of a project. Something you've been doing at work. You're just eager to get that thing done. What, what are you looking forward to? Getting your license? Getting married? Getting that degree? Getting out of debt? For some, it's probably nothing that specific. It's just like getting unstuck. Life is just not happening. It's not working out the way you had it planned right now. It's like I'm chasing my tail. I got to get out of this rut. I'm looking forward to life being different than it is right now. Some wait with delight, anticipating joy, a new birth, retirement, an anniversary. Others wait in agony, waiting for the relief from pain. Waiting to get out from under this dark cloud of depression or grief. Looking forward to to getting on a new medication or getting off a medication. Looking forward to some answers at a next appointment. What are you looking forward to? We've, uh, We've been going through the Apostles' Creed all summer long. It's this summary, this powerful restatement of the Bible's teaching. And we reach the climax today. With that, we're we're looking forward to something. All summer, we've looked back to understand all of the different contours of this faith that is still standing after all of these years. And so that we would all own it and internalize this ancient but yet still potently relevant faith for us today, we've been going through the whole thing uh, every week, line by line, saying boldly, we believe, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord, God's only Son. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he was raised again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit who empowers the holy Catholic, the universal church. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And all of that brings us to the last clause, which invites us to lean into the future and look forward with anticipation to the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. The creed, the teaching of the Bible, invites us to look forward to something. And, you know, when you're looking forward to something in the future, that shapes how you live in the present, doesn't it? We've got a team from Mountain right now uh, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. They're raising a bunch of money for uh, Kenyan, to send Kenyan students to college. That was something they were looking forward to for the weeks and months in advance of that. And it shaped what they did. They were trying to get in shape, buying gear, hiking in new boots, and raising money, getting vaccines, all of that stuff. That, that's how it is. 
When I was, um, I was 15, I was looking forward to getting my license and uh, saving up some money to buy a car. Well, that influenced my spending choices leading up to that point. I had some money saved, but I knew I'd probably need to borrow a little bit from mom and dad and or need to borrow their car for a time if I wanted to go somewhere. So I was being like really well behaved in those moments leading up to my birthday. I wanted to prove to them they could trust me. I was responsible enough to handle this new freedom in this era that awaited me. That's what we do. When you've got something out there, whether it's something that will um, you know, make your life better incrementally or exponentially, you adjust your present based on your anticipation of that future event. That's why the life coaches tell you you need to have something to look forward to. You've got to have some hope. If, you can, if life stinks right now, but you can, in your imagination, uh, hope for something in the future, even if it's something as simple as making plans to go out with a friend this weekend, that can pull you through the present drudgery at work. What are you looking forward to? People have been thinking along those lines for, for a long time, asking that question and trying to answer, what am I looking forward to? And the Bible, which helps us understand the faith that we proclaim, it also points us in this direction. Now, you might say, oh, I know that one. The, the thing that the Bible uh, talks about that is coming in the future, I know all about that. Because, you know, you've read the Bible or uh, some book about it or you watched The Good Place on Netflix or Oprah said something about it one time. Yeah, it's heaven. All dogs go. And then there's like harps and clouds and, and white clothes. And everybody goes and waits in that long line before the pearly gates like in that old Snickers commercial. And then when you get in, there's singing like forever. But golf seems to be one of the electives. It's pretty popular. And the food there is to die for. So, I mean, I'm pumped. Right? Who's not looking forward to that? All right, so here's the thing. Here's what seems to have happened. Uh, somebody, somewhere, was like putting together the travel brochure for heaven. God's great hope for his people. They printed it right there on the cover. But then on the inside, they chose to feature a bunch of lame, at best, quasi-true, at worst, deceitful garbage to describe what that great hope was all about. And then they peddled those suckers all over the planet such that many of us, when we say that last line of the creed about the life everlasting, we do so with this rather haunting suspicion that maybe we're only talking about that stuff in the stupid brochure. So here's what I think we ought to do. Let's first figure out what the heaven is supposed to be in that brochure, what the creed is inviting us to say that we believe, and then we can figure out why or if that even matters. Can we do that? <laughs> all right. So the rest of you just keep looking forward to dinner, all right? You'll be fine. <laughs> Now, I won't answer all your questions. I won't answer all my questions. And, and we've got to be humble and admit there's, there's a lot that we don't know. We don't want to be overconfident and go, you know, talking exactly like we can know exactly beyond what the Scripture teaches. But uh, we can find appropriate confidence and understanding and encouragement in what we can know and what the Bible does give us. So we'll seek that out today. Now, we, of course, we have the whole Bible at our disposal. You, you maybe have one of these. It's collecting dust at your house. Or you can call up the Bible in three seconds on your phone if you want to. But uh, imagine for a moment that you were stuck somewhere without your phone. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> uh, and you didn't have the whole Bible. You, you had one page of the Bible available to you. Which one would you want? Like you had one chapter of the whole Bible. Which chapter would you choose if that's all you had? 
Now, we'd probably have different answers that would come back on that, and that's fine, but uh, certainly one of the possibilities would be 1 Corinthians 15. And if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I just want to lay it on your lap, and you kind of scan through it some today, or bring it up on your phone, 1 Corinthians 15. It's written by a guy named Paul. He started a whole bunch of churches, and he was writing to a church in a city called Corinth. It's the first letter that we have, 1 Corinthians, clever title. And when he's writing 1 Corinthians 15, he's got resurrection on his mind. That's a word from, from the last line of the creed. We believe in the resurrection of the body. There's a lot of questions and confusion about that, so Paul is trying to provide some insight. And he starts by talking about Jesus' resurrection. Not as like a concept, but as a thing that happened in history. No one saw it coming because death has a good way, a good track record of keeping people dead. But it did happen, and people did see it. Paul names them, Peter, James, all of the disciples, more than 500 people at one time. They saw Jesus resurrected. And then Paul says, so did I. I saw him too. He was crucified, died, and buried, and then he rose again. Central part of the creed. We've already been through that. We are all witnesses, Paul says. You thought Nike invented that slogan about LeBron James. No, they stole it from Paul about Jesus. Now, there's more to this. Uh, Jesus' resurrection has implications for, well, for everyone. And Paul starts taking on those people who would say there is no resurrection. Like, that's not a thing. It most certainly is. Paul's like bewildered. Now, I said we've got to be humble, and we do. But on this point, the Bible gets emphatic. How are you going to tell me the resurrection is not a thing when it is played out right in front of us? Go ask 500 of your neighbors. How are you going to deny that resurrection is a central part of God's agenda when he made it the climactic moment of Jesus' life on earth? It's like, I don't have time for this nonsense, is basically what Paul's saying here. And then he puts a sharper point on this. Uh, let me help you see what God is doing here. Uh, and who's God again? According to the creed, which God? Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Yes, that God. And Jesus, who is Jesus. That God's son, yes, Jesus, that God's son, the Christ, has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or died. Got an image here, first fruits. Now, if you, uh, if you planted a field of wheat or a vineyard of grapes, what do you anticipate in doing that? You're like, you're like I don't know, I'm from the city. I, I, don't, I don't know. But uh, you're, you're planning to harvest all of that, Right? You, uh, that, that's what you do if you're a farmer. Well, when that harvest first comes around, the first crop, that first fruit, which generally was offered to God as a way to say thank you for providing. Okay? And that's a great way to think about giving. Uh, when, when God provides something, you give him the first portion of that. And you do that, you give the first fruit, knowing that that's a sign of more to come. Just like that first portion of the field has become ripe, so will the rest of it. And Paul says that's a great way to think about resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit, a sign of much more that is to come. You might remember, death is in the world. Death came into the world through uh, one man. And also, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Just as surely as Christ has been made alive and we are witnesses of it, those who are in Christ can look forward to the same thing. No matter what you're going through now, no matter the death that comes to us all, we're looking forward to a harvest. 
Now, I'm, uh, I'm a city boy. Uh, my food comes from the store. Actually, no, my wife does the shopping. My food comes from the fridge. Okay? But even if you're like me, imagine for a moment that your livelihood was dependent upon the harvest. You plant your seed and you do your work and you tend your fields, but then you're waiting in the midst of a whole bunch of things that are beyond your control, things that could threaten your entire yield. So imagine how relieved you are when that first fruit is ready to be picked. Oh, we're going to have a harvest. We're going to be all right. All that time you've been waiting, looking forward to this day, through the storms, through whatever drought or flood, the hail, the bugs, you made it. I'm looking at the first fruit in my hand. We're going to have a harvest. Now, even if you don't glean your living from the land, I'll bet you know in a different way what it's like to wait through drought and doubt. Storms. Not being pelted with hail, but with insults and setbacks and failures and injustice and sickness. Floods of grief and loneliness and and questions. And seasons when it seems like you're doing everything right, but you're getting all the wrong results. And you're very acquainted with sin and death. It entered the world through one man, but it has got us all. Will it overtake us? Will it take away everything that we have been looking forward to? Will it have the final word? No. Because Jesus is the first fruit. We have witnessed it, and that means the harvest is guaranteed. That's what we're looking forward to. You can show your appreciation for that. When you say, um, I believe, and when we all live by the truth that's held out in the creed, it's It's saying we are people of tangible hope. Not just blind like we wish something good would happen, but we have seen Jesus. He is alive. The first fruit has come, and we're looking forward to the harvest. Well, what exactly will will it be like? Uh, What's inside of that brochure supposed to say? And that's the next question to which Paul turns in 1 Corinthians 15. There was confusion about it, and Paul wanted to clear it up. Again, not to be overconfident, Um, to say more than we can know, but speaking boldly about what we can know. Paul writes this, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Well, here's how he answers that. Where did this come from? The fridge, right? No, came from like a big apple tree, right? A whole tree full of tons of them just picked right off of there. But actually, we know that all of that came from one of these, right? A little seed. Now, we, we have the benefit of having eaten one of these apples. You've been by a grove of apple trees, but forget about that for a moment. If all you had was this, this little brown pebble, there is no way that you would assume that this would one day turn into this, let alone a whole tree. There's no way that you would assume that if you put this into the ground, that it would sprout something of an entirely different sort. There is nothing about the character of this that gives you any kind of clue about the character of what it will one day be. To think that you could tell all of that would would be foolish. That's actually what Paul says. He goes on to say, what you sow, 
it doesn't come to life unless it dies. You, you, you sow it, but you, you don't put the whole apple tree into the ground. No, it's just a seed, maybe of wheat or, or of something else. But God then gives it a body as he has determined to each kind. He gives its own body. We believe in the resurrection of the dead, or excuse me, the resurrection of the body. We don't believe that we'll be disembodied spirits like floating around in the clouds. No, the body goes into the ground, a lifeless seed. It comes out changed. Just as you have seen play out in your fields year after year, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. Well, if we're getting a new body, what kind of body can we look forward to? Can we know anything about that? It's like this. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. In short, it will be glorious. Now, we don't have the benefit of seeing that final apple tree, so we can't really get close to describing it, but it will be incorruptible, indestructible. I mean, think about whoever now you think has the most glorious body. Actually, don't think about that too far, but just understand it's only a seed, weak, destined for the grave, but what it will become in power, in glory, imperishable, a spiritual body, we can scarcely imagine. And with this, we find ourselves right back to where we were at the beginning of the creed, at the foundations of the world, in awe of God's creative power. At the beginning, God created out of nothing. God spoke into the void, and a beautiful, intricate, glorious world appeared. Life was created. Hearts started beating. Lungs were filled. Relationships formed. Purpose defined. And when you look toward the horizon of what God will do in the future, he takes a void, lifeless seed and remakes it into something totally new. And actually, at the end, he's working on the same scale he was at the beginning, not just remaking individual bodies, but doing as he promised, making a new heavens and a new earth. And oh, don't we need that. I mean, think, think, of, think of both levels for a moment. First, your own life, your own body, and all the ways that you're unhappy with it. The scars and bruises, the aches and pains, the shame and, and embarrassment, the ways that it's been used and abused, whether that's self-inflicted or by others. When your blood runs cold and that bag of bones is put into the ground, there ain't nothing about that that would suggest that anything beautiful or glorious is coming. Until... You understand that your story is part of something bigger than yourself, caught up in the purposes of the God who brought life out of nothing, who took a dead so-called criminal and made him the king of the universe. It is in no way beyond that God to take the seed that is your life and make out of it something unbelievably wonderful. That's what we're looking forward to. And then... Lift your gaze. Think on the broadest scale, not just about your own life, your own body, but this world and all the ways that you're unhappy with it. The hate, the wars, the the needless suffering and injustice, poverty, greed, loneliness, people dying too young, racism, classism, sexism, 
to, to claim the creed is not to be cynical, but it is to be real and to resist this utopian idea that it'll probably all just get better on its own. If, if we just uh, work hard enough, if we're kind enough, if we advance technology far enough, we'll probably usher in some kind of golden age. Now, not that any of those things are bad. That's just not our hope. What we're hoping for is God to do something fresh, something new, to deliver on his promise to intervene and create something new out of which is old and broken down. God, take these broken parts and make something new as only you can do. Take what's wrong and make it right as only you can do. Take what's empty and fill it as only you can do. Take what hurts and heal it as only you can do. Some would be surprised to discover that this this is the way that the Bible teaches us to pray. As opposed to a prayer that's something like, God, take me away from this place and do away with this ragged thing. It's going to do us some good, I think, to to, to bring this home by saying a little bit more about what we can know about what's coming, our heaven or the life everlasting that we name in the creed. Uh, Heaven is not so much, it's not so much a geographical location like in the sky, but the Bible uses that word heaven to describe God's realm. That's God's space. And there is right now like a sort of veil distinguishing God's space, heaven, from our space, earth. But what the Bible invites us to look forward to is the time when heaven and earth will be joined together. That's the the hope. When, When God's space somehow becomes one with our space, that's what Revelation is talking about in the new heavens and the new earth. When God says, I am making everything new, part of what's so startling is look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. It's actually not about us going to heaven. It's about heaven coming to earth. It's about God taking all of the goodness of heaven and bringing it to overtake the world redeeming, restoring, rebuilding. It's a new creation project in which God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. The new Jerusalem, which Revelation describes, is the dwelling place for God's people and its pearly gates. The image there is the new Jerusalem coming from heaven to earth. It's coming to us, not us going there and standing in line. There's no temple in that city because God's glory and presence can't be contained into a box. We're never at a distance from God in the new world that he creates. He brings his space and takes over our space, healing the nations, giving water without cost to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. That's what we're looking forward to. So then, uh, should we correct those who say, well, so-and-so died and went to heaven or went to be with the Lord? No, that too is a biblical concept. It's just referring to something different. Now, Jesus uh, says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus says to his disciples, my father's house has many rooms. I will go there and prepare a place for you. Paul's writing to the Philippians saying how he longs to go 
and be with the Lord. So it is true, the Bible does describe a place, uh, paradise, or what we actually most often call it is heaven. The Bible teaches there is a promised location for those who die in Christ. It's a place of rest and refreshment, and most wonderful of all, we will be with Christ. It is in every way wonderful to be there. But this is not the resurrection. It's not the resurrection of the body to which the creed is pointing and which the Bible teaches about. It's where a person who dies in Christ resides until that time. So it's, it's temporary. And meanwhile, they're in good hands. They're in safekeeping while they're there. Right? And it might seem like, well, geez, they sure been there a long time. You know, what's going on here? I, I don't know other than to say time is not a thing there. The Bible says, with the Lord, a thousand years is as a day. Okay? So we don't have to worry about that. They will be in no way disappointed. They are in good hands. They'll be fine until the Lord appears as the Bible promises. Creed proclaims, he will come again. And that's when the resurrection will occur and the new creation will begin. 1 Thessalonians 4, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, voice of the archangel, trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. They were in safekeeping. They will rise first. What about the rest of us if we didn't die already? Are we, are, do we lose out? No, back to 1 Corinthians 15. Listen, it's a mystery. We will not all sleep. We won't all die, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we, if we're not dead yet, we will be changed. Saying the same thing, the dead will be raised, and we all, if we're still alive, will be changed into whatever that apple tree of a body is awaiting for us, because the new creation project has begun, and ain't nothing can stop it now. So, Understand, then, that, that we don't just believe in life after death, going to be with the Lord. We also believe in life after life after death. When Christ returns and the resurrection begins and we are raised with imperishable bodies to live in God's new world. So what will we be doing in that world? Golf, singing, maybe. Here's what we can know. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. His name will mark them, be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They won't need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. The Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. We'll be doing what we were created for in intimate relationship with God, our creator, face to face, no distance. Bearing his image, we'll serve him. By his light, we will reign in his new world. Just like this was God's intent at the beginning when his image-bearing creatures were given dominion over his creation. Except then, unlike at the beginning, nothing impure will enter this world. The ancient serpent who ruined the first world has been thrown down and defeated. No longer will there be any curse. 
Someone needs to get this in the brochure. To have life everlasting is to reign with Christ. To have stewardship and authority and privilege and purpose in God's new world. All the while thriving in the ecosystem of God's love and presence, which is gloriously inescapable. That's something to look forward to. Amen. And now you know why the Bible ends with, come, Lord Jesus, amen, which just means, let it be so. And that's how the creed ends. But as we end uh, today, remember, when you're looking forward to something in the future, it shapes how you live in the present. After, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes through all that, takes us on the journey, paints the picture, death to life, perishable to imperishable, dishonor to glory, weakness to power. It's all true for Jesus. It's guaranteed it's true for you. After he gets through all of that, talking to people who are living in weakness and dishonor under the threat of death, he says to them, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's what we're walking out of here with. We've looked backward, we've looked ahead, we've gone through the whole creed, we know the basics of the faith. Now stand firm in it so that you will always be still standing. World's broken. Your life is broken, but stand firm. The new creation is guaranteed. In fact, its power is already here. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead brought the future back into the present and resurrected Jesus is now alive in you, is alive remaking and changing and redeeming anyone in any place that will welcome the spirit into it. So stand firm, let nothing move you. You ready to give up? to give in to temptation, to write God off because he's too long in answering. No, that the storms might be raging now, but the harvest is guaranteed. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Maybe you say, I'm giving myself to do do God's will, but there's so little progress. There's so much opposition to the cause of Christ, so much heartbreak. Stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because that kind of work is not done in vain. That will last. People who give themselves to the work of their own agenda and self-promotion, that won't last. You worry about my agenda, God says. Continue to love. Continue to bless. Keep giving. Keep forgiving. Let grace abound. Keep praying. Continue to care. Strengthen the weak. Feed the poor. Do what God has entrusted his stewards to do because that work will endure in God's new world. Our task now is to plant the seeds that will grow in the soil of the new earth where we are reigning with Christ. That kind of work is by no means in vain. And on the flip side, we must do the work to uproot, first in ourselves, the the things that will have no place in God's new world. Jealousy, hatred, greed, sexual immorality, idolatry, deceit, none of that will grow 
in the new creation. It will all be burned up according to Revelation. And we hate the thought of judgment. And we know God is love. But because he's love, he has to be just. In a world as bent out of shape as ours, there has to be someone loving and wise and powerful enough to set a plumb line and get it straight. We long for a world set to rights, but there has to be someone loving and wise and powerful enough to make a judgment that is right. And that's wrong. That belongs in the new world. And that does not. That can come into the city. And that cannot. I mean, none of us are getting in. It's outside the grace and love of God. By grace, we're invited in. Invited in. We're given an inheritance freely. It's guaranteed, but it is not forced upon us. You can choose to stay outside if you want to when God takes all of the beauty and wonder of heaven and overtakes the earth. And you can choose now to clutch the envy delicacies of this world. But the witness of the Bible is that when the new creation comes, you will find yourself empty-handed because you're holding on to what's perishable. So plant seeds that will last and uproot what will be burned up. 1 Corinthians 15 says that one day God will be all in all. Make him your all in all now. Philippians says one day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Bend the knee now. Confess with your tongue now. And then, whether downcast, depressed, defeated, diseased, or dead, you will always have something to look forward to. Let's pray. God, thank you for the truth of your word, the beauty of your story from beginning to end, and the fact that we are in that story, the fact that you thought of us, you have invite us, invited us to know you. We long to see you face to face. In all of the struggles of this world where we wrestle with things that fall apart and decay and we face death itself. God created in us a longing for that new world. We, we together say, come Lord Jesus. For those of us who need to repent and have a desire for you to live in your new world, call us back. For those of us who need encouragement to stand firm because we're beaten and broken down, embolden us. Fill us with your spirit. Give us the hope, the world that you will create and let it inform our present. We claim the hope that we have in you and we worship not some made-up blind hope. We worship a resurrected Lord Jesus. We pin our hopes to him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, that's a good word. Hey, before we go today, if you're able, would you stand? We're gonna sing and respond.